We are finishing now the book of Mark. Uh, we've been walking through for several weeks and months um, the book of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 16. We're going to go through the end of the book. If you do not have your Bible, which you will need this morning, just simply lift your hand and one of our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. If you don't own a Bible at home, that is our gift to you. Please write your name in it. Take it home. That is yours. Um, Otherwise, just leave it in the seat after service so that we can use it to bless others. While you're turning to Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 16, um, there's a woman by the name of Harriet Beecher Stowe that I want to introduce to some of you. She was an American abolitionist and an author. She was born around 1811. She's most famous for writing the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, by the way which highlighted the harsh conditions for slavery and really helped energize an anti-slavery movement through America and Great Britain. Harriet Beecher Stowe in the 1800s would go on to write 30 more books. She actually has a feast day, a special day of honor in the Episcopal Church today. She has the Distinguished American Series stamp with her name on it at the U.S. Postal Office. And there is even Harriet Stowe State University, which is named after her. A woman, by most estimations, accomplished a lot in life. But other than writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, she's probably most famous for saying these words. The bitterest tears shed over the graves are for the words left unsaid and the deeds left undone. Isn't that true? No matter how much we accomplish, even today or tomorrow or Monday or Tuesday, doesn't it always feel like right before you to get, go to bed, you're reminded of all the things that you didn't do, all the things that you should have done, all the things that you didn't say, all the things that you should have said. And if that's true of our days, how much true of our lives? I mean, how many of us really, when we get to the end of our lives, look forward to being able to say, God, I did everything you asked me to do. I accomplished everything. Man, I hope to say that. I really do. But if I'm looking at how yesterday went and the day before yesterday went, odds are there will be some regrets. Odds are there will be some missed moments. Odds are I will fall short, and that's why we need grace. But there was a one man, and probably just one man, who at the end of his life did everything that God sent him to do. He accomplished every task, never missed a moment, and his name is Jesus. So the question that I want to consider before us today is, what did Jesus come to do? Did he accomplish it? And if so, how then should we live? What did Jesus come to do? Did he actually accomplish that task? And if he did, which I believe he did, how should we then live our lives? Let me give some context before we dive into the text. What did Jesus come to do? Mark 10, 45 says it this way. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is a purpose statement. All the folks writing papers, like that's what it should sound like. Amen. You say what you're going to say. You say it, and then you remind people what you already said. That was free. Y'all can take that with you. That's a purpose statement. Jesus is saying, this is why I come. I did lots of really good things, but that's extra. I said lots of really good things, but that's extra. At the core, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Luke puts it this way, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That is Jesus' purpose. So the question before us today, did Jesus accomplish that? 
And if so, how then should we live? That brings us to our passage for today. Read with me Mark chapter 16. I'm just going to read the first few verses because we're going to walk through um, to the end of the book. I'm going to start at verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. For those of us who are picking up in the middle of the story, we've been walking through slowly but intentionally and meticulously this moment leading up to right now. Jesus said at the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, it says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And Jesus has been preparing us for this moment through chapters 13, 14, and now 15, saying that I have come to die. And he was falsely accused betrayed by his brothers, abandoned by his followers, tried by his enemies, and convicted by liars. And finally, he's been found guilty of treason against Rome, a capital offense, and he is going out to be crucified. The man who healed the sick, raised the dead to life, fed 5,000, fed 4,000, preached good news to everyone, was found guilty of treason. And now he's being led out to be crucified. That's where we find our story now. Mark chapter 14, 35 tells us that this was to come. He says, he went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. That brings us to our first point. Jesus must first drink from this cup. Now, drinking from this cup is a familiar term for some of us, but a new term for others. What is this cup that Mark keeps talking about that Jesus keeps mentioning? What is this cup that as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked that it would be taken away from him? Well, this cup is the cup of God's wrath that must be poured out on Jesus. Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand, you who have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. So we see this cup is the cup of God's wrath that's about to be poured out on Jesus. Y'all, there's a reason why Mark doesn't include a lot of detail in the crucifixion. And maybe you've heard a sermon preached about the crucifixion, but how gruesome of a death it is. And I don't want to sell that short, y'all. This is a bad way to go. It would take two to three days for a person to die from being crucified. They would slowly suffocate, slowly die from exposure to the elements. This was a painful and slow way to die. Even Roman citizens, no matter what they did, could never be crucified because they said no Roman citizen should die this way. But what makes the crucifixion gruesome is not the method of punishment, although it is gruesome. It's the man that was punished. You see, Jesus was the only innocent person to ever die for someone else. There are mean people who were convicted of crimes they didn't do, but they are still guilty of others. Jesus was the only man who was innocent, who willingly laid his life down to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Read verse 27 for me. Let's pick it up. He says, they started verse 24, they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. 
Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him, verse 26. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. Verse 27, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Let me pause here for a second. In other gospels, there's more to the story about what those criminals said. But if you remember just a few weeks ago, that should sound familiar, that one was crucified on his left and one was crucified on his right. Do you remember? Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John were having this conversation with Jesus. And he says, teacher, in verse 35 of chapter 10, he says, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this is the disciples talking to Jesus. Verse 36, he says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. Sound familiar now? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the, bapti- with the baptism I am to be baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am, with the baptism I am baptized with. What is he saying? See, they thought Jesus was on his road to glory, that he's going to ride in on the white horse, conquer the Roman kingdom, sit in a palace, and they wanted to make sure that they had the comfy seats up top. And so they wanted to sit on Jesus' left and on Jesus' right, but Jesus knew he was going to a cross. And so he asked them the question, do you really know what you're asking? Because for you to be on my left and on my right in my moment of glory, you would have to die as a criminal as I'm about to die as a criminal. And so he says, no, you will suffer, but today you don't have any idea what you're asking. And so the first thing we see that did Jesus accomplish the the purpose for which he came is did Jesus drink from this cup of God's wrath? Did Jesus experience the the full weight of God's anger at sin? I don't know about you, but this verse means a lot more to me now that I have a son. And I couldn't imagine doing to Ezra or Judah what God did to Jesus, let alone for the benefit of people who would mock him and hate him and deny he even exists. What more does God have to do to get our attention, church? What more should prompt worship and obedience and love and service than a man laying down his son, than God laying down his innocent, holy, and righteous son so that we would never be cast out? And so we find Jesus, the son of man, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, nailed to a tree, slowly suffocating to death between two criminals. And so I think we can say with great clarity that he did drink from the cup of God's wrath and God's suffering. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was mocked. There's a passage in Isaiah that says that he went as a lamb silent to be slaughtered. That always stood out to me because you don't hear a lot of Jesus' words after he's convicted. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot for the rest of this chapter. Why is that? Why did Jesus have to be silent as he was being crucified for us? Because he's God, y'all. The slightest whisper of rescue and angels would have come down. The slightest whisper of anger and vengeance, and everyone would have been destroyed. He had to be silent because his words came with the power of God himself. And so he took it for us. So did he drink from the cup of God's wrath? Yes. Yes, he did. He was whipped. He was mocked. He was beaten. He had the the sins of the world poured out on him. But then what happened next? Verse 42. Actually, let me go back up. I'm sorry. Verse 32, 
Those who were watching said this, let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with Jesus taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those were standing heard this, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered it for him to drink. And, let's, and they said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you hear those words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to be honest, there is a theological rabbit trail that I want to go down because those are some of the hardest words to interpret in all of Scripture. How can Jesus, who was God, be abandoned by God? And the best answer that I could wrap my small mind and understanding around is Jesus said those words so that we would never have to. Jesus felt God's anger and distaste and his discipline and his fury at sin so that we would never feel that ourselves. In layman's terms, God turned his back on Jesus so that he would never have to turn his back on us, all those who put our trust in Jesus. And so Jesus bore the full weight, even as he was being mocked by those who were watching him, saying, if you are the, truly the Savior, why don't you save yourself? If you're truly God, why don't you get off this cross and prove it to us, not knowing that staying on the cross was them proving that he was God. And so Jesus is being crucified right now. He breathed his last, and the curtain in the, in the holies of holies was torn in two. And that's significant. That's significant because that was the curtain that separated people from the presence of God. That was the curtain that only the select holy, the chief priest, could go in once a year to offer a sacrifice for the people. That curtain being torn down meant that sacrifices were no longer necessary. That now there is no longer any mediator that's necessary between God and man that Jesus really did take on the sins of all the world. So it's no longer sin that separates us from God. It's now faith that brings us to him. And so he breathed his last. The curtain is torn down in two. God's wrath is satisfied, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion that he, he gave the corpse to Joseph, and after he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, rolled against a stone against the entrance, to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching as where he was laid. Why is that important? Every gospel takes extended time to make sure that we understand that Jesus actually did die, that he actually was buried. This wasn't a hoax. This wasn't a trick. This, wasn't, this is a historical event that there was a man named Jesus who was nailed to a cross, who actually did breathe his last and was actually buried. But if you know the end of the story, you know he did not stay dead. That death was eventually overcome. Verse 1 of chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. 
He had died suddenly, and so they were trying to rush to bury him because quick burials are part of the Jewish tradition. So very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which is very large, had already been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him, but go tell disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him just as he told you. And they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, for some of us, this is good, hopeful, life-giving news that Jesus who died, if he would have stayed dead, then his death wouldn't have been anything for us. But because he came back to life, he actually proved that he was God. And so his death was sufficient for us. So this is the foundation of the Christian faith. If you are not a believer today, let me give you a challenge. If you can take away the resurrection, the entire Christian faith crumbles. You take away the empty tomb and the whole Bible gets thrown away. But this is why this must be more than a fairy tale. This is historical fact. Let me prove it to you. The book of Mark was written about 30 years after the death of Jesus. 30 years is not a long time. And, they, they, and Mark is writing that this man, Jesus, 30 years later, died and came back to life. Now, 30 years is not a long time. So the people who saw Jesus die and the people who saw Jesus come back to life were still around when, Jesus, when Mark read his gospel. So if there was a controversy the whole Christian faith never got off the ground. If, if the Jews are like, no, man, you talk about Jesus in the tomb, the dead body that's right there, the whole first Christian faith would have stopped. Let me give you another example. If someone were to write a book right now about this famous barbershop quartet named Cash Money Millionaires, um, about how this, this, four, this trio went around, this quartet went around singing barbershop quartet songs, we'd be like, no, that's actually not what they were saying at all. If you don't know who that is, please don't look them up later. <laughs> please don't. Don't just, just accept what I'm saying is true. Don't Google that later. Um, but the point is, if you write a story about something that's not present, but we remember who they were, we remember what they did and didn't do, and if you were to write a book saying that they were a barbershop quartet, we'd have some problems. Odds are you wouldn't make it on the New York Times bestseller list for lying. So the Bible, the most published book in the entire world, the most historically founded, grounded book in the entire literature, in the history of literature, could not have survived if this was a lie. Because the people who saw Jesus die were alive when Mark wrote his gospel. And so most credible historians don't even deny the resurrection. They just point to other reasons. They say, oh, Jesus was in a coma and then he woke up. Because the reality is there's an empty grave, y'all. The reality is there was a man who was once on a tree, but now we can't find his body. That's just true. Whether you believe in Christianity or not, that's just true. So we have a faith that says that he walked out of that grave. His body wasn't hidden. He wasn't in a coma and disappeared. It wasn't a, a mass hallucination. This really did happen, and it is the foundation of our faith that Jesus did overcome death. But then so what? So what? I've sat in many a Sunday sermon 
hearing about a man named Jesus who died for my sins, who stood on the cross, who was buried for three days and came back to life, and I left every Sunday saying, so what? Even if that is true, so what? The price of gas is going up. Like, these, these things are true, but for me, as, a, as an unbeliever for many years sitting in a church service, my question was always, what's the big deal? Even if it is true, let the Christians have their little religion and let me live my own life. Y'all, what does it mean that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? If we accept these things as true, what does this mean for us? Let me start with the believers first. Verses 14 through 20 of chapter 16 are going to tell us that the first thing it means for us is that we are sent out, but not without hope, not without power. We are sent in power, y'all. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in you, that lives in me if you are a Christian. Let's read verses, let me start at verse 14 of chapter 16. It says, later he, talking about Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. I love that phrase. They just hanging out. Jesus shows up. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. And if they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. Now, let me pause right here. Some of you have got a little freaked out right now. We talk about handling snakes, talk about drinking poison and stuff. He's like, man, Christians don't really do that, right? That's not saying that you're a superhero, y'all. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're a superhero. It doesn't mean that you're invulnerable. It doesn't mean that you're Superman or Superwoman. What it means is that as God sends you on mission, he will give you the power to complete that mission. Where God sends you, he will give you the power to be there and be effective. We only have to look to the stories of a few missionaries, both locally and globally, to know that that's true. Paul himself was bitten by a poisonous snake. He picked it up and threw it away and kept on talking. Because God had a mission for Paul. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go out there and play in traffic. That just means that God will protect me until I'm done. Y'all have heard the phrase before that you're immortal until you're done? Until God's done with you, you cannot die. Until God's done with you, you cannot die. Until you've done the thing that God has put you on this planet to do, God will preserve your life. The question is, are we doing the things that God has told us to do? Are we on mission or do we want God's power without pursuing God's purposes in our life? The first thing that we should know, what this, why does this matter, is for the believer, this means that we are sent out in power. We've been given a mission and the means to accomplish it, y'all. The other thing, this means for the unbeliever, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20, and I'm going to end here. The Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying sign. Look at verse 19 again. He was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Was Jesus tired? All that resurrection got him weary? No, he sat down because he was done, y'all. John captures John 19:30 captures something that Mark didn't include. He says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. 
That word finished means in the, in the original language is to telestai. It's an accounting term that literally means paid in full. You had a debt of sin. I have paid it in full. It's finished. Amen, y'all. So here's the, here's the thing that I began to wrestle with as I was just praying through this. When God said it's finished, what is there left for me to do with my sin? When God said that my sin has been paid for, how dare I feel shame over my sin? How dare I not forgive myself for the sins that God has already forgiven me? How dare I think that I will be stuck in sin, that I'll never get better, that I'll always be stuck this way, I'll always be addicted to this? How dare I believe anything that invalidates what Jesus has done for me when he said it is finished? It also means that you have no part in your own salvation. It's not like God did his part just waiting on us to get it together. Let me hear this. You may disagree with this, but let me tell you why this is good news, y'all. Jesus did not just make salvation possible. Jesus did not just make salvation possible. He accomplished salvation for his people. Because if all he did was make it possible and was left up for me to do the rest, I don't know about you. If it was left up for me to finish the work that Jesus started where I had to do the right thing, then I'm in trouble. Then I'm in trouble. I'm still out in the streets. I'm still out in the world. This church isn't planted if it was relied upon me. But because Jesus said it is finished, he said, I will come get you. I will save you. I will make you new. Then I will send you back out with power. That's what he means that it is finished, y'all. And that's why it's good news that Jesus did it all. The song we just sung, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That is a true statement, and that's what makes the gospel the gospel. That's what makes good news good news. That's what makes Jesus worthy of worship and God the Father worthy of praise, is he did everything necessary. All he asks us to do is go and tell somebody else, to go live in joy and in freedom of the gifts that he's given us, to grow in our relationship and holiness, And those seem like small ass compared to what he's already given, does it not? Does it not? So, what does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ was on the cross? Why does it matter that the tomb is empty? For the believer, two things. One, you've been sent out with that same power. That same power that led to an empty grave now lives within you as the Holy Spirit, empowering you to do what God has called you to do. And until you're done, you're here. That's good news. And secondly, don't let the devil lie to you about the power of sin in your life. We were even in huddles this morning, we were talking about the, the cycles of sin and shame and guilt and isolation. What are we doing in that? We're punishing ourselves because we messed up yet again. We feel like we've got to pull the whips out and flay our own backs because we've got to feel bad. We've got to distance ourselves from God. And we've got to earn our way back into God's good grace because we blew it again. It is finished, y'all. That sin was already paid for. That sin didn't surprise nobody but you. God already knew. Your friends probably already knew. Our sin doesn't surprise anyone but us, y'all. God knew about that sin when he was on the cross. He knew that you would say, I'm sorry on Monday and do it again on Tuesday. He died for that sin too. He knew you would do it again on Wednesday and Thursday, and you feel bad about it. He knew that you would convict somebody else about it because they're doing it, and you don't like when they do it. He died for that too, y'all. 
It is paid for you. Your sin, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, is paid for it. Stop paying for it every day. Stop living in sin and shame and guilt and condemnation. Live free, y'all. Live free. Because that's what it means that Jesus has paid for sin. And if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're here today, know that the, his, the resurrection is a historical fact. There is an empty tomb, and the moment you can disprove that, all of Christianity falls apart, and we're still here. 2,000 years later, Christianity is still here because there is still an empty tomb. There is still someone who died and came back to life with all power in his hands. And you don't have to do anything but trust in what he has done. You don't have to clean your life up. You don't got to stop doing that stuff you're doing. You don't got to get your life together. You don't got to do nothing as a prerequisite for a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's done it all. All you've got to do is put your faith in him and watch him change you. I was talking to a brother the other day, and I said, man, you know the gospel. You know that Jesus loves you. You know that God is real. Why aren't you following him? And he says, man, I'm just, I know I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to mess it up. I don't think I can stop doing the stuff that I'm doing. He felt enslaved to sin, and he thought that he had to be free from sin before he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Was that anybody's story? Did anybody get right first, right? Did anybody feel like they needed to get right first? Like, that's not the gospel, y'all. The gospel is come broken, come weary, come heavy laden, and I will give you rest from your sin. So come to Jesus. You feel addicted to sin? That's all right, come to Jesus. You feel stuck in sin? Come to Jesus. You feel like you're unworthy and unloved? Come to Jesus. And he will make new life happen from the inside out. It'll be a slow process. It will. There'll be some fumbles and stumbles and trips and setbacks along the way. There will be. But it won't just be you fighting yourself. It'll be the power of God at work in you, putting to death a body of flesh within us. That's the gospel, y'all. Nothing more, nothing less than that is the gospel. I want to end with reading Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. Several hundred years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said these words about Jesus and about us. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to just hear these words and meditate on the truths of them. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord was punished And the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellions. He was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. 
When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. And he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. We are the rebels. We regarded him as nothing. We regarded him lowly. Yet him knowing that, he died submitting to death for our benefit, for our resurrection, for our good. So why does this matter, church? It matters because now we've got a job to do. We've got to tell everyone else about a God who knew everything about us and yet still loved us and called us sons and daughters. It matters because we are free from the penalty of sin and death. Don't not forgive yourself for sins that God has already forgiven you for. Don't let shame keep you crippled when God has already died for those sins, has already paid for those sins. Live free and let the Holy Spirit work from you from the inside out. In just a moment, we're going to close. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, hear the invitation. He has already been crushed. He has already been punished. He has already been despised and cast out so that you will never be. And all he has is that you come to him in repentance and faith, trust in his work, not your efforts. And you too can be saved. You too can have this new life in Jesus. Don't leave this place without having a conversation with somebody about this new life in Jesus.